Welcome to You've Gotta Taste This, the podcast where food people tell you about recipes that you've simply got to taste. I'm your host, Adam Roberts, and I've been writing about food for almost 20 years. I love to cook, and even more, I love to talk about cooking. So let's get started. My guest today is Noah Galutin. He's a chef and a food writer who has a brand new cookbook out, and I asked him to assign me a recipe that he's passionate about, and here's the message he sent me. Hey, Adam, it's Noah Galutin, author of the Don't Panic Pantry cookbook coming out on January 31st. And boy, there's something in here. And I'm telling you, you got to taste this. This is the pasta with rosemary mushroom tomato sauce that I just absolutely love. And I think you'll love it, too. Let me know what you think. So our debut episode of You've Got to Taste This features Noah Galutin's porcini or dried porcini rosemary tomato sauce, which really did blow my mind. And it is You've Got to Taste This material. Here we are talking all about it. All right, Noah, thank you for being my very first guest on my brand new podcast, You've Got to Taste This. Are you nervous? Are you excited? I'm honored. I'm, oh, uh, good. <laughs> very excited about it. And uh, it's uh, it's great timing because... As it turns out, you have a new podcast and I have a new cookbook. So, uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, Good segue. Okay, well, kismet. Uh, before we get to your book, I just want to explain to our listeners how this podcast was set up and what we did in leading up to it, which is basically I reached out to you and I said, can you send me a recipe that you're really passionate about and that you could have a lot to say about? And then you sent me this recipe, which I have in front of me, uh, for pasta with rosemary mushroom tomato sauce, which is from your new cookbook. Uh, which is called Don't Panic Pantry, available uh, everywhere. Everywhere books are sold, but uh, ideally, you know, uh, like anything else, it's good to support local independent bookstores. And there's some great ones all around the country um, now. Serving, I meant the, I meant the you know, date, not these independent. Oh, bookstores. sorry, uh, <laughs> January 31st. But pre-order okay. now because pre-orders are very important. Turns out, got it. Okay, so this recipe. Now I gotta say, Noah. Um, the concept of this podcast is like this recipe is going to be so good. Like you, you have to try it and taste it. And when you sent it to me, I, I was a little bit like, okay, I've had dried mushrooms before. I've had, I've made tomato sauce. I've put rosemary in it. So I was kind of going into it skeptically. Um, like I how... didn't re- reinvent the wheel with the recipe, but no, no, don't denigrate yourself because I made it last night and it truly blew us away. It was a, you've got to taste this recipe. Oh, I'm so and... glad. Now, in my experience, um, I've only used dried porcinis in like a stew or like a like a much bigger like thing. So what I loved about this recipe was that you sort of soak them and then chop them and then saute them in with the oil and everything. And they get kind of crisp. I don't know if but crispy. Yeah, what, what, they they yeah. kind of like hydrate with like fat and flavor. And so they kind of take on all this flavor and they all kind of bounce off of each other. So you get... And then they also get like a little bit of a braise action almost with like the white wine and that kind of stuff. So it's it really is this kind of way of taking something that's a pantry stable. You can keep dried mushrooms in your pantry forever. Mm-hmm. Um, you can keep, you know, obviously rosemary is, you know, you have to have fresh rosemary, but yeah. it's all these great dried ingredients and canned tomatoes. You can combine it all together to make this kind of like uh, it's almost like a tomato sauce that kind of hits you with opposite extremes at the same yeah. time. You get these kind of woody, earthy elements. Yes. You get some acidity from the tomatoes and the white wine. And you kind of combine all that together to just make like a really hopefully comforting pasta that feels like you're, I don't know, eating it in like a in like a, a northern alpine village or something. Yeah. You know, it's so funny you say that because I don't cook with a lot of restraint. And when I read the recipe, I was like, I should make this recipe exactly how he wrote it 
um, because if I do it my own way, it's not going to, I'm not going to be recommending this to other people in a way that they'll be able to re recreate. So you had one tablespoon and one teaspoon of olive oil. Um, and normally I glug in like a quarter cup of olive oil. So I was like, okay, I'm going to follow this. And it actually, it was perfect. Like, I don't think it needed more fat. And then I drizzled some on at the end. Yeah. And then, you know, part of the fun of the fat is also cheese, which is great at the end. Yes. Too. But yeah, so that's, you know, it's, it's funny with recipe writing, like, obviously, you know, uh, when I cook stuff at home, I don't measure things that much, but you know, when you start to find a way to make recipes that are actually can be reproduced. And like, mm -hmm. I think about this a lot with, you know, I've written other cookbooks too. And like, like to me, like one of the greatest accomplishments I've ever had, uh, in, in recipe writing is when I wrote recipes with Kevin Blood. So for his cookbook, we were yeah. on your uh, other podcast. Yes, you were on that. My old podcast. Let's not talk about that. It's oh, ancient no, no, history. No. Yeah. New and new and improved. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like those like those paper towel ads where it's like, remember our last rolls? Those turned out were garbage. The new stuff. This <laughs> yeah, is yeah exactly. This is this is where it was always at. Um, so see, so you were but saying yeah, with so Kevin he, Blood. So yeah. And so he, you know, was always a cook by feel guy. And so writing yes. recipes with him was really just getting them together in the kitchen and cooking. And it was stuff that he's been making for generations with his family. Um, and they go back, you know, through his grandmother and great grandmother. And so when I would have be able to hand that recipe to someone else, they mm -hmm. would cook it and serve it to him. And he would say it tastes like his mom made it like wow. that to me is like a, a working recipe. So it's, you know, while I do love being people being able to modify as you see fit, cook food, you're willing to eat to cook food that you like. Mm -hmm. When you write a really good recipe that actually works, it's yes. just such a great feeling that people can make that in their in their home kitchen and have it work out. And I just actually made a recipe this weekend, which I'm not going to talk about whose it was, but it was from a brand new cookbook where it was very casually written and it did not come out. And I was <laughs> mad at myself because I was trying to follow that recipe to like include it in my newsletter. And um, so I did exactly what it said, but in, in my playing it back in my head, I was like, oh, I should have added more liquid. I'm not going to even tell you what oh, it is. So let's not talk about it. But with your recipe, what I, the other thing I really liked about it, and the reason you've got to taste this if you're listening, is the balance of it. Like, I really loved um, that it wasn't like too much of anything. And it was it really tasted authentically Italian um, in the sense that like, if you go to Italy, not that I've been there anytime recently, but <laughs> everything I hear about Italy is that it's not it's not like they like hit you over the head with everything. It's like not like right. eight, eight cloves of garlic and like American Italian sauces yeah. tend to be like there was yeah. a real subtlety to your sauce but the earthy Craig uh my partner was um eating last night he's like he loved it too and he actually had it for lunch today so we're not oh, that's I'm so not, cool I'm not lying here uh and he used the word earthy too so let's let's get to the because well, rosemary um, can oh, be a very strong yeah intense flavor and so you need to combat it with other strong elements on the other end I kind of like when you can make a recipe. It's, I think a lot of like Southeast Asian cooking is this way. And this is very different yeah. from my book, obviously, but um, where like it feels like you're getting punched in the face in two different directions at the same time. So it's yeah. in the middle and then you're like, uh -huh. you get to stand still. That's really interesting. Okay. So tell us the, the genesis of this recipe and how you came to make it. Yeah. So um, for those who are not familiar, which probably most of them are not, um, this book kind of came about out of... Um, uh, a variety of things, but one of the main parts of it was during the pandemic when it all kind of started, my wife, who's a very successful and amazing comedian, had to suspend her worldwide tour. And Say her name. Else. Tell us who she is in case people don't know. Eliza Schlesinger. Uh, you yes. can see her new special on Netflix, among among many others um, of hers and other people's, I guess, too. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, we were like, all right, let's try to, you know, she's got a big platform. I know how to cook. Let's help people 
you know, learn how to uh, use what you have, limit trips to the grocery store, cook with what you have, kind of encouraging people to learn how to do that stuff. Um, and a lot of her fans are like younger women who haven't really had to cook for themselves that much. And so we thought, like everyone else, it was going to last two weeks. We ended up doing <laughs> 250 episodes. Yeah, you guys up... really did it. Like I tried to do Instagram lives and stuff, and I did them kind of casually. Yeah. But you guys really made a meal of it. Not, not to well, use an obvious metaphor, but what, it was great. Uh, what we what we uh, lack in 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 success, we make up for in persistence. I think you're doing very well. <laughs> I don't buy that. Um, so okay, so you were doing the, this this, and was it? Yeah. Because now, so now it's the, a YouTube show, right? But but then yes, it was an Instagram. It is, okay. Now it's a YouTube show. Uh, don't panic pantry on YouTube, which we are uh, slowly building up. Building a YouTube channel is turns out uh, a very slow, long process. But I'm I already gave up on it. I, I, I was it. like, I can't do this. It's too much. I promised myself two years of episodes before I could yeah. decide if it was successful or not. Um, yeah. Anyway, and so one of the recipes we made um, on the show, because I'm just like, you're doing it every single night for, we did it for months and months, and it helps keep us from going insane. But then I was like, oh shit, I have an episode tonight. What can I make? And I was like, well, I've got two slices of bacon in the fridge, got a canned tomatoes, got some rosemary, got a little bit of white wine, and threw together this rosemary bacon tomato sauce. And it was a hit. And everyone uh, who made it at home loved it. We loved it at home. And then when I started writing the cookbook, I wanted to include the recipe, but you know, and one of the 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 ethoses of the book, e Ethi, what's the plural? <laughs> ethoses. I like that. That could be ethoses. the name of your your next cookbook. Could be called Ethoses by ethoses. Noah Gluten. Yeah, <laughs> Ethoses. Definitely my last cookbook is Noah. Yeah. Um, is uh, is using meat as an accent, not as the main primary part of a dish, and that you know you can have it flavor something and be really a part of it without having to have this sort of American ideal of like. I discovered steak, so I want to be able to eat a 32-ounce porterhouse for dinner every night. Um, and so uh, this was a cool way to show that. But then because I eat a lot of vegetarian food at home, I wanted to make a vegetarian version. But rather than so many cookbooks that say, like, you can omit the bacon and make it vegetarian, I wanted to actually write another recipe that was different but really good. And that's where this one came from, this version with the dried mushrooms. And I actually think I like it more than the bacon one now. And I've been well. That's what you said when you emailed often. me. You said that you actually yeah. like this one better. Um, so, in terms of your technique, because I mean, I know a little bit about your your life and story and history and and places that you've worked. But in terms of um, pasta making and how you yeah learned learned to do it, what 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 was how did you learn all this? I guess I mean that question. all starts with my mom. Basically, okay. I always laugh that like the basis of almost all of my like. My freeform cooking just starts with olive oil and garlic, and then I figure mm -hmm. out the rest from there. And so my mom uh, is Italian-American. Um, she's basically half Italian, half Irish-American. Her mom was off the boat Italian, moved to New York from Italy, uh, and married an Irishman because all the Italians she knew were in the mafia. And so uh, we just kind of grew up with a lot of Italian food in our house. And, of course, as it kind of filters through the sort of hippie California version of stuff, um, I grew up eating a lot of kind of my mom's twists on her mom's foods and it all kind of keeps evolving. Uh -huh. I was back in like the, in like the early nineties where, you know, Turkey was health food. And right. so like making a Turkey meat sauce or Turkey meatballs or like a brown rice pasta uh, or for a brown, uh, not brown rice pasta. We'd had that too, but a whole, whole wheat, wheat pasta, yeah. Whole wheat pasta. Those kind of things. And you start to like, you know, uh, have that basis, but there's still all this very basic core of like, I was, you know, raised to believe that you should be able to make tomato sauce uh, in the time it takes to boil water and cook pasta and you should never mm -hmm. buy a jar of sauce. 
And we should say in this recipe, like basically once you prep all the ingredients, it only takes about 20 minutes to pull together. Like it was, yeah, it's about the time it takes to boil water and cook pasta. You have to soak the mushrooms for 20 minutes, but you know, that's that's easy, not that much activity. So yeah, it's a pretty quick kind of weeknight recipe. And it's a, it's definitely a staple in my house. I find myself planting rosemary all over the backyard Mm -hmm. now because it's just like one of those things that grows wild in California really well. And I just, couldn't put it in so much stuff. And so I ended up putting kind of a lot of rosemary in the book, weirdly enough. Yeah, I love rosemary. And I liked that um, you don't have us like pull it off the stem and chop it. It's like you just throw those stems yeah. in whole and throw fry them a little bit in the oil. I mean, that was the fun part is like flavoring that oil with the rosemary and the mushrooms. Because yeah. I've done that with garlic and anchovies and stuff. But here it was like sort of a totally different direction, which I really appreciated. Yeah. Uh, and then I got these tweezers from now serving the bookstore uh, in Ooh. Chinatown. I had got these like iridescent, like really large kitchen tweezers just because I like the way they looked. Yeah. And uh, I've never used them except last night when I was picking the rosemary <laughs> stems out of the sauce. I got to use my tweezers. So that was there great. There you go. So in terms yeah. of like, I, I would say the rock star ingredient in this dish, like the thing that people at home might not have ever used before is dried mushrooms. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how else you use them and, and what, what, you know, what else they're good for? Yeah, I mean, dried mushrooms, I mean, if you think about, you know, if you use any dried uh, item versus a fresh one, they just have sort of more, the the flavors change, they're less fresh, they're more dried, the flavors get more compressed, I think there's like more umami to them. And again, they're, they're shelf stable. And so Mm -hmm. it's one of those things that uh, you can use in a lot of ways, I actually use it a lot, as you said, like in soups, or it's great in, um, I have in my book also recipe for a vegan dashi which is mm. basically just uh, just uh, kombu or dried seaweed and um, and dried mushrooms. And you sort of let those go together and it becomes a really great, really fast, like vegan soup base that you can use cool. to kind of make whatever. And that's a really fun thing to do as well. And so, the, yeah, the dried mushrooms, and they just kind of have this kind of depth of flavor to them. And mm-hmm. sometimes they almost taste a little smoky just because you get that like intense flavor from them. And so it just kind of felt like a natural fit um as a way to kind of do it with this recipe and uh and they just take on the flavors of everything else they kind of help flavor each other in all these cool ways and so yeah it's just a really fun little dish that's you know it's almost like a a gateway into the way that i cook because it's really accessible it's not like that outlandish of a concept of a dish but Mm -hmm. it is still kind of stands out in its own way and tastes a little different it kind of that to me is like what like california italian food sort of tastes like in my mind it's like that's interesting yeah like uh, you want to feel like you could just be walking through big sur and like forage (laughs) pasta yeah but it didn't taste like overly like hippie granola healthy like it definitely tasted like like, you know like like an indulgent uh you know weekend pasta kind of thing um but i was going to ask you if you were to make this with fresh mushrooms would that be worthwhile and how would you do that yeah, actually, uh, if you go onto uh, my YouTube channel, there's a fresh <laughs> mushroom mushroom pasta that I made recently on the show that I really love. That's like a totally different. That's like a big, chunky, rustically torn up mushrooms, and that's yeah. like more of a wet, saucy sauce. That's um, mm-hmm. that's uh, yeah, I, I love that kind of cooking too. And so yeah. they're just sort of different. Um, this one is a little more like sort of tight and intensely flavored. The other one is just kind of more uh, big and loose and fun and and mm-hmm. uh yeah it's like a yeah saucier kind of a thing because when you use fresh mushrooms they're a lot wetter and so there's a lot mm-hmm. more stuff like that going on with them but you can also get into a lot of variety with fresh mushrooms which i love 
Like, yeah. uh, I, you know, I'm a big farmer's market guy. And sometimes I'll just go and get like the mixed mushroom bang from mm -hmm. the guy. I've seen those. Like, yeah. It's, it's like 80% like a... shiitake because they're just trying to, right. you know, rip through those. But it's, and I, I'm a big fan too of just like ripping mushrooms by hand and not mm -hmm. cutting them. And That's just cool. throw them in there and you get all this kind of fun mixed up stuff, put big chunks of fresh herbs, big hunks of shallots. Sometimes, uh, yeah, I love that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm a big fan of like, of, you know, changing what you're used to sometimes and seeing how different it can be. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes that means using less things. Like I'm a big fan of removing ingredients from cooking sometimes. Yeah. And it makes you realize what things really taste like. Mm -hmm. um, are we allowed to talk about other recipes or is sure that, is yeah that of course yeah well, i mean this, this, this is this is the star of the episode is your <laughs> porcini mushroom pasta but now we'll talk about some other stuff too well just from a philosoph philosophical standpoint as i remember how to use words um <laughs> like there's a recipe from the silver spoon cookbook that i love and it's one of those recipes that has so few ingredients that, that it changes the way you think about stuff and it's it's a really simple braised chicken where essentially you just put a ton of butter in a pan, sear the chicken in the butter, like cut up in pieces, like crowd the pan, don't worry about it too much, mm. and just let it all kind of get going. And then you just pour in uh, tomatoes, white wine, milk, and salt, and then milk. braise it together. Yeah. You lost me at milk. That's weird. Well, milk is a great braising liquid. Milk breaks down proteins in really cool ways. That's why, like, you've you ever had like a milk braised pork shoulder. And I've done stuff? it. I've I've done like Marcella Hazan's, uh, yeah, the one with like lemon peel, and it's yeah. really delicious. But that it almost like becomes like custardy in that recipe. Like it's kind of yeah, it can do that a little bit. Um, but there's just something about like when there's like you would think when you make something like that, you want to put garlic in, you want to put herbs mm -hmm. in there, you want to put all these things in, and then when you use good ingredients, you just have like chicken, white wine. It's not that much butter, to be mm -hmm. honest. I think it might it might even be heavy cream. I think it's butter, though. Uh, I'm sorry. I think it's milk. And you just kind of braise it all together, and, and then you serve it over rice, and it's like this gorgeous pink sauce that just tastes mm. like kind of this like like acidic, fatty chicken broth with big pieces of chicken, and you eat it over rice, and it's like it makes you realize kind of what things taste like. Wow, you're giving us a bang for our buck in this episode. So now there's two <laughs> things that you've got to taste if you're listening to this. In fact, like you've just inspired me. I'm going to definitely try to make that. I thought you were going to say like you brown it in the skillet or the pan because like Lydia Bastianich has a recipe that her mother made where it's like a whole chicken that you cut up um, into pieces mm. and then you fry it like in a, in a big like frying pan. But like as not frying it like a like southern fried chicken, like just sort of like Italian, like it's just the chicken skin hitting the hot olive right, oil. Right, right. But then you throw in garlic and like pepperoncini and then you throw in like potatoes. And like the idea is like you're like sauteing oh, yeah. it, but like frying it. And like at the end, it has like rosemary and lemon and like you take it all out and you've got like fried potato pieces that are cooked in the chicken fat. And like it's that's like a, a yeah, that's a crazy one. Well, I was curious. So like in your professional life, you've worked at um, different restaurants, you, you know, you're you, you, I don't oh. know if you're still working with um, Bloodsoe's Barbecue. Peripherally, um, but not not day to day. I'm pretty much just uh, stay at home dad writing a ton of cookbooks these days. Right. That's great. And then you did um, Prime Pizza or Prime. Yeah. Prime Pizza, Bloodsoe's. Yeah. But I guess um, my question is like in terms of your personal expression as a cook or chef or a cookbook author. Yeah. Like like does writing this cookbook, does it make you want to open your own restaurant where you serve this kind of food? Um. No. Uh, <laughs> so I think that home cooking and restaurant cooking are so different. Yeah. And I think that there's certain things that are 
going to always be better at home than they are at a restaurant. I mean, Mm -hmm. think about how rarely you've been to a Mexican restaurant where the Spanish rice was good. Mm -hmm. Because it's so often steam table dried out. But if you make it at home, it is unbelievable right after it finishes being cooked. And so things like that, I think about a lot. Um, I actually came very close to opening my own restaurant right before the pandemic. I was looking at spaces kind Mm. of going through that path with everything. And uh, and and then the pandemic hit and I was glad I didn't, hadn't just signed a lease. And then all the cookbook stuff kind of took off. And, uh, you know, I love restaurants. I could uh, there's a lot of romance to me of wanting to open one again. But uh, the older I get and the more I think about just the realities of life and becoming yeah. a 40 a year old dad with a with a bad back. That, you know, <laughs> maybe uh, writing cookbooks at home and seeing my daughter is, uh, yeah. is better than. Uh, standing in a restaurant for 120 hours a week, uh, making very little money, but people can complain that it costs too much. I mean, I've watched The Bear, and like, if, if ever there was anything that like makes me not ever want to open a restaurant, <laughs> it was watching that. I mean, it just it yeah. just feels like it feels like being a professional athlete. Like, it feels like almost less about food as much as it's about stamina and like perseverance yeah. and just yeah. being able to be on your feet all day and just you know. And I think uh, that you know, yeah. think about how I mean you've probably experienced this. So many chefs don't cook at home and actually mm-hmm. are not people whose food you'd want to eat at home. Yeah, And I, I would so often uh, rather eat at a really good home cook's house for dinner yeah. than one of the best chefs in the world. That's so funny because I've had chefs say that to me, like where it's like, like I'll say like, I'm too intimidated to invite you over for dinner. And they're like, that's all we want is like a home cooked meal, you know? Oh, so yeah. yeah, it's the greatest. I mean, my neighbor yesterday, uh, had people over and made chicken and dumplings. And it mm. was like, it was the greatest thing I've, I ate all day. It was yeah. incredible. But uh, yeah, so that kind of stuff, I think is, I think people, uh, I think they they over deify chefs and they underappreciate really good uh, home cooking. And it's funny because I, I'd say if the pandemic has changed me at all, it's po- possibly because I, and in the way that like, I so love home cooking now that sometimes like, I don't have the desire anymore to go out it's like yeah. a really like frou-frou fancy restaurant where it's like everything is just so and it's like oh. so expensive. I mean, it's just I don't know. I mean, I I, I think certain oh, places <laughs> do that great, but I much prefer like a cozier like bistro or just something oh, where God, it's yeah. more casual, you know? I mean, I, I experience this when I'm traveling is that I'm people try to tell you like, oh, well, you're a chef, so you'll want to go to this Michelin star restaurant. It's like, yeah. that's the last thing I want. <laughs> like, and I it's you know, there's nothing. I mean, there's nothing. There's few things more depressing than like an okay one Michelin star restaurant. Yes. You spend a lot of money at, and you're like, I don't like. Why did I, I do that? Your 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 take on like uh, on a caprese <laughs> salad with gelatin. Like I'm good. Yeah. I mean, and it's so, funny. Be, yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's like I love theater. And I think what I'm realizing about myself is like, I get really excited to go to those kinds of restaurants because of like the theatrical nature of like having an evening unfold, but it's not so much about how, but a big part of it for me now is how it makes me feel. Mm -hmm. And like to go to like a tasting menu and like eat like eight courses and then like leave there like stuffed to the gills and you're just (laughs) like, oh, I never want to eat again. Like it's not worth it to me, you know? Yeah. And to me, it's like, if it's this is now we're getting into like snobby territory, but if it's yeah, like this one does of sound the, very privileged what I'm saying, but yeah, no, but it's it. like if it's one of the best of the best, and it's like like yeah, like I I happened to be traveling with my wife when she was in Copenhagen, and I mm. got a, a solo reservation 
to Noma while she was on that stage. That is incredible. That could have been my own. That could have been a whole episode we could have done about that. I want to hear <laughs> oh all about God. that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was amazing. And I had an incredible time. And you and, you know, it's an absurd amount of money, but it's like a once in a lifetime thing. And that's great. But like, uh, I mean, I <laughs> I was laughing about this recently. I had the 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 good fortune of uh of being able to go with Bill Addison to dinner once, who's a yeah. restaurant critic. I've done LA. it too. Yeah, he's a friend. Yeah, he's totally. the greatest. I love yeah. that guy. And you have dinner, and you have this like long tasting menu together. He was like working on the one hundred and one list, and then you finish dinner, and I'm just like, we were texting like, oh, that was fun. And it's like, and then I'm so excited to like stay home and eat like a bowl of soup tomorrow. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I've got a thirty six course dinner tomorrow, and I'm just like, kill me. That's the biggest change that's come over me in like my 15 or 16 years of doing food writing is I have absolutely no desire to ever be a food critic now. Oh, like at the beginning, I was like, oh, what a cool job that would be. And now I look at what Bill has to do. And it's like, oh, I mean, it seems like the greatest job in the world to just get to eat all the time. But in terms of what it does to your body and how to how you have to counteract that. Yeah. And I just no, what couldn't. you want is to be the friend of a person with the expense account. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so I'm curious at Noma, I mean, talk about like, you've got to taste this. Like, what were the things that you ate that you'll never forget? Or I mean, was there anything? Was it not? There that was memorable? amazing stuff. There was like a smoked quail egg that was with like kombu that was incredible. But the thing about Noma, I was so blown away by just the amount of work they have to do to get to the place to get to these you know, whatever it was, 18 dishes they served mm -hmm. that night. And they're all incredible. Some of them are absurd. Like, it's like, yeah, that's, that's really good reindeer penis. You know, I don't... <laughs> Yeah, I saw that. I mean, I showed that to Craig <laughs> and then he was like, you've got to be kidding me. And then we haven't seen it yet, but the movie, The Menu came out. And oh, I feel right. like, have you seen it yet? <laughs> I didn't see it. No, I need to go see it. I mean, I feel like it's so about that, like just the absurdity of finding yeah. it. But you, but you liked it. You liked it. I mean, I, I'm not like, oh, my God, a reindeer penis was amazing, but like they made it <laughs> taste good. Um, and so to me, it's like, think about how many dishes didn't make it to get to a good reindeer penis. <laughs> do, you, do you pay less money for a flaccid re reindeer penis? <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think if the reindeer penis is fully engorged, it's probably still alive. <laughs> yeah. The su supplemental, the supplemental $225 engorged reindeer penis. Yes. Um, a live reindeer penis. <laughs> what was it like eating there by yourself? Because for me, like to eat that kind of food, I would want to be there with somebody to be like, oh my God, isn't this crazy? And like, look at this. But like, did you feel yeah, lonely? Yeah. I would yeah. rather have had my wife there with me. Sure. Um, but uh, I also, I, I I got the reservations through a friend of a friend um, who, uh, my actually it was a friend of mine who used to work with the executive chef at Noma. And cool. so uh, he was able to kind of, so I got a little bit of like the personalized chefy treatment and he gave me like the tour and he's like, gives you a glass of scotch to walk around and see everything. So I got like that feel to it. And then uh, I don't know if you have this same, problem that i do but i have uh like a crippling desire to have my server like me um, <laughs> and so i uh right <laughs> i was drinking a lot of wine and getting very chummy with my server and i you know yeah and you know you end up like you end up on your phone a lot alone at noma like sending pictures to people and things yes. like that i think with a so, phone having a phone makes you feel less alone at a restaurant like i think it's like a game changer in terms of what it probably yes. felt like like long i mean i remember going to paris before phones like were a big thing 
And I went with my friend John in grad school and um, he didn't want to go to Joel Robichon or I think he had left early and oh, I really yeah. wanted to go to like L'Atelier, Joel Robichon, where you sit at a counter and I had nothing to look at, nothing to do. And I was just sitting there and I was eating this incredible food, but I just felt so self-conscious yeah. and so uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, but you had your phone. That's good. The phone helps in that particular instance. But uh, yeah, I recommend not doing that if you're with someone else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So I'm going to, I was going to ask you like in terms of like the fantasy football of it all, because we were talking about you're not opening a restaurant, yes. but in the fantasy of a Noah gluten restaurant, what would it, what kind of food would it be? And how do you imagine it? Oh man, it was so close. I can send you the entire uh, business plan pro forma, the pitch deck and all that other stuff. Be um, careful because if you tell us about it, you might get an investor who's listening to this, who like wants to do it. Yeah. I mean, there's always like, that's the thing is there's always the myth of like the, I'm not going to open it, get it set up and then let it run without me, which doesn't yeah. really happen. Those are called bad restaurants for the most part. Um, but it was basically, it was, uh, it was my kind of my version of a pizzeria that I'd always wanted to open. Oh, okay. Uh, and I, you know, I kind of, I, I think pizza is kind of this really cool platform that you get to do things that you care about in a way that I think are very uh, accessible to other people. Like I think mm -hmm. about like my favorite pizzeria in America right now is probably Lovely's 5050 in Portland. Um, oh, I think I've never heard of it. Oh, it's incredible. She uh, Sarah Minnick is the chef owner there. And actually, if you watch the the Netflix chef's table of pizza, one of the episodes is about her. Okay. Um, and she's just this completely self-taught um, chef uh, who wasn't even a chef originally and then tried to figure out how to, how, to, how to do it. And she basically makes these like really high whole grain percentage pizza doughs um, that defy logic because usually a whole grain pizza dough is really like dense and not mm -hmm. that good. Hers are like crispy, fluffy, pliable. You can fold them and they will sort of crackle but not break. And then she just uses all these uh, incredible farmer's markets um, in, in Portland and gets just sort of the craziest, best, most interesting vegetables and makes these vegetable forward pizzas with like edible flowers that are gorgeous and wow. cool cheeses. And it's like, it's, uh, I say my wife does not like to eat pizza that uh, doesn't have red sauce and doesn't like to eat the crust. Except at Lovely's, she will eat every weird pizza on the menu and eat the crust. And it's like, it defies, it defies love. And she also makes like some of the best ice cream in America too. What's the, what's the weirdest pizza on the menu there? I mean, it changes constantly, um, you know, but there's like pizzas that have like grapes on them and things oh, like that. I love that. that. That's not that weird. I've had that. No, like the glue but, but, cheese or, and grapes. Yeah. Or there's like, um, uh, you know, like, like quinoa greens and just like right. sort of lots of like fun forage things. You know, she like uh, ferments her own tomatoes, um, things like okay. that. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of cool stuff like that. And she's, But back yeah, to just, your your pizza restaurant. So like, what would yours have been? Uh, so, the, I mean, I guess uh, I'm probably never going to open it. So it doesn't matter if I talk about it too much. But one of the things I think about, and this is just me ranting now, is uh, everybody keeps opening Neapolitan pizza places and I'm sick of it. Yeah. It's like... Everyone and there's a reason that they do it, and I can explain that if you want to get into weird restaurant yeah. math. But basically, sure. uh, they're I think of them as giant puffy crust pizzas where you eat one bite and you're at the crust, and it's very like kind of soft and soggy, and there's not that much cheese. They're usually very wet, and yes, there are amazing versions that are amazing. Yeah, obviously. I just went to Pizzeria Say. Uh, oh yeah, it's a good restaurant. It's like a Japanese kind of take on it. Yeah, and it was good. Yeah. But yeah, and it reminds good. me of what you're saying. Yeah. But what I really want 
out of pizza for me and what I wanted out of this restaurant was I wanted to be able to eat uh, like thin, crispy pizza that highlighted the great produce of California. And I wanted to be able to basically have two people be able to share a pizza, a salad and a bottle of wine. And that was kind of what I wanted out of it. I kind of described it as like if you took Lou Colley in Brooklyn and then like mm-hmm. dragged it through North through through like California. Yeah, that's, that's great. What I was sort of doing and it was really close to happening. I had a lot of investors lined up. I had everyone kind of very excited about it. It was all pretty much ready to go. I had an LLC um, and then the <laughs> pandemic wow. hit and, uh, and it was for the best, obviously for a variety of reasons, but you know, I kind of, uh, I liked the idea of a menu that I, I describe it almost like a, like a river in that it's always the same, but constantly changing. Yeah. So the, the basis of the menu is staying the same, but what goes into the chopped salad changes with the seasons, mm-hmm. you know, what the seasonal, you know, uh, vegetables are that you can get onto it, but also, you know, uh, you know, if you want to have pepperoni in your pizza, you can have it. It wasn't, I didn't want to make a stuffy place where you can only get it this way or this right. way. Right. Sounds uh, great. Yeah, you get like a 16 inch pizza and it's, and it's kind of light and crispy and all naturally uh, fermented and um, using almost exclusively California ingredients. Flour is a little tough. Um, and just, and I was, yeah, working with all these great local people and finding great ingredients and getting into the fun California natural wine scene. And uh, yeah, my friends got to eat a lot of really good pizza while I was working at it. <laughs> I think you dodged a bullet, to be very honest. Like I think about the friends I know who are chefs, and I think we know some of the same people. Yeah. And they, they always look exhausted. And I, I, oh, as much yeah. as like you are a new father, you don't seem that exhausted. But like some <laughs> of the chefs that I know, like truly look like They've been like ridden hard and put away wet. Let, let's... Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the truth is, if you open a restaurant, you're going to be there, you know, at least 100 hours a week, more like 120 yeah. to 130 for the first year and a half. Wow. That's and crazy. Then, and that's, you know, if you're if you're fortunate, you know, and then if you're lucky, you get to keep doing that stuff. And it's yeah, it's a crazy business. I kind of had this dream of what I wanted to do. I had. And because I have enough background um, in opening restaurants and consulting and doing these things, I was able to kind of have the full business plan put together. So when I looked at a space, it's very easy to get kind of rose colored glasses on and go, Mm -hmm. I can see how this would work. And yeah, let's do it. And uh, instead, I was able to kind of sit down and go, "Okay, so here's what it would cost to open it. Here's, you know, what the labor model would have to be. Here's Mm -hmm. what the rent is. And I'd have to be making this much money by this amount of time for it to be able to pay back investors in three years. Uh, you already and lost you me. Go, I don't think I could do any of that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, you need to be able to do that. So you don't kind of realize that, you know, we got to be doing $2 million in sales in year one to be able to, to make ends meet. And that's people, I think just kind of jump in and do it and don't run the numbers first. And mm-hmm. uh, I joke that my consulting company for restaurants is basically uh, if you pay me $5,000, I'll save you uh, $500,000 by telling you not to open a restaurant. <laughs> That's a great business. That, <laughs> yeah. I make a lot, a lot of money doing that. So um, in terms of pivoting back to like the home cook who's listening and wants, yeah. you know, great things, can great pizza be made at home? And what are your tips, tricks, and pieces of yes. advice for that? Not to keep plugging the YouTube show, but there's a <laughs> episode we did. We've done a couple of pizza episodes. But to me, the great trick to making kind of accessible pizza at home that's not going to require a ton of skill or a lot of equipment Mm -hmm. is sheet pan pizzas and doing Mm. kind of those like new york grandma style pizzas and i was very fortunate to train with frank Pinello, who opened best pizza in williamsburg and taught me to help us open prime pizza here in la and the grandma pie is great because uh you can basically shape it in the pan with Mm -hmm. olive oil right so 
you don't need to worry about getting flour everywhere. You don't have to worry about if there's like a small rip in your dough and trying to land it on a pizza stone. And then there's smoke pouring out of your oven because it spills everywhere. Now your pizza stone has like caked on garbage on it. But <laughs> that's like the whole trick is you basically, uh, you know, you can find good dough recipes. I've got one on the channel if you want to see that. And then you shape it in the pan, let it kind of proof in the pan. And then you just put sauce and cheese and toppings on it and put it in a regular oven as hot as it goes. And you end up with really, really good pizza. And so that's the great pizza trick. You can do other good pizzas at home. Um, you can do it with pizza stones. And yeah. a, a lot of people really swear by it. I think it tends to work the best if you use two pizza stones, put one on top and one on the bottom. So it creates more radiant heat. Uh, so when you put the pizza on, it's getting that kind of more of a pizza oven feel because, you know, those like New York deck ovens, they have stones on the top and the bottom. So it hits mm -hmm. it on both sides. Um, Do you have a favorite um, topping combination when you make pizza at home? Um, you know, I'm always like a believer in like, you mm -hmm. know, sauce and cheese is the is the true test and see if you're good yeah. at it. Um, on a square pie, you know, there's a lot of ways to go. Sometimes I I, I really like to do like the upside down L&B's Pomoni Garden style where you do like the sheets of cheese along the bottom. Yeah. And then I've you do the sauce on top. And especially for those kind of pizzas, what it ends up doing is it kind of creates a protective barrier to keep the dough from getting soggy. Uh -huh. So you get this crispier crust pizza and then the cheese is super stretchy and melty. Um, although one of my favorites that my, it's actually my wife's favorite pizza that I do is when there's like, when it's in season, there's this like, this like purple uh, kale that like the garden of places like that have, but any kale will work. And you do that with uh, half mozzarella, half smoked mozzarella mm. with kale and shallots and tomato sauce. And that's, Yum. yeah, that's a really Does the nice kale thing. get crispy or is it like you cook yeah. the kale first? Oh, okay. So it's no, just like the, the crispy kale, kale goes on top at the end. So you get that yeah. kind of crispy, crispy. I love that. On it. A little bit of that smoked cheese is nice in there too. So for those who are listening who, you know, are not necessarily food professionals with as much experience as you've had, are there like, things that you keep in your refrigerator and your pantry, like little oh, yeah. uh, items. I'm sure you put it in your cookbook, but uh, there's a whole pantry section. And also yeah. part of it is like, is making stuff that can live in your pantry that you can then mm -hmm. use kind of to do various things over and over again. Like, um, uh, but yeah, I mean like some of the, like, look, I always keep cans of tomatoes in my pantry. I always have dried pasta, rice, lentils, mm -hmm. dried beans, all that kind of stuff is always going um, and then having like, you know, but like, I love to like make a good chili oil and keep that in the fridge. How do you um, make a chili oil? So there's lots of ways to do it. When I was working on the chili oil for my cookbook, I was trying to, this is really a book geared toward, uh, home cooks that, you know, a novice can learn how to do things on it, but also even like with you, like the rosemary pasta, it's not yeah. a, it's not a, uh, it's not a hard dish, but it's a new way to think about things. Um, so even, uh, experienced cooks, I think can get a lot out of the book and then novices can get a lot of basics out of it too. Um, so what I found to be the most consistent way to make chili oil is essentially treating it like your confit. So you take oh. all your things you want to put, put it in a pot, submerge it in oil and keep it on low heat and let it kind of build that way. And that way you're infusing all that flavor. Um, I think people try to do really high heat chili oils. And those are amazing when you do them right, but they're very easy to to scorch and turn bitter if you don't know okay. what you're doing. And so this was my method that I thought, not that I invented it, but the method that <laughs> I found was the uh, the most, pr produced the most consistent results and you have a delicious, beautiful chili oil. And you so can like, add, what like, kind of chilies? Like, it's like, are you doing like um, Fresno chilies or jalapenos? I was using mostly dried chilies for this. So I would oh, use, okay. um, 
I use chili de arbol a lot. I think yeah, they're I really that. cheap. They're super available. They have a really great flavor to them, but you can kind of use whatever. Sometimes I just get, you know, get fancy. I'll throw like ginger in there and I'll throw mm. in uh, um, Sichuan peppercorns, yeah. um, any kind of spices you want to throw in there. Cinnamon people like in chili oils sometimes, depending on kind of what you're using it for. Um, and then sometimes just because people like when chili oil is red, I'll yeah. add a little like um, uh, paprika or um mm or anato to it just to give it the color because then people it's like you want it to look red on the plate i've it's actually just... not really used a lot of chili oil in my own cooking so like what do you do with it you just drizzle it on like something at the yeah end it's of greatly cooking. grizzled over fried rice i actually there's a recipe in the book and this one's very modifiable but it's like a really simple it's i call it a crowdy omelet it's basically just sauerkraut and eggs kind mm. of cooked really gently in a pan for like a super healthy probiotic kind of protein slammer in the morning. Yeah. But I find that if you cook it in chili oil, it just kind of gives you this extra kind of fun to it. That's it's, cool. Uh, spicy food is a great way to make health food taste uh, like there's more going on to it without being that bad for you. Yeah, totally. That's a good, you've got to taste this a little tidbit is to make your own chili oil and to use it. Yeah. So now in terms of like health food or eating healthy, I mean, I noticed like in the book that like you have green, what is it, like green juice or green, oh, like a smoothie. Yeah, so I mean, I call in it your health sludge, health sludge. but well, in terms I'm of the... under yeah. undersell and over deliver, because if you call it health sludge, people go like, "Oh, that's going to be gross," and they try it and they go, "You know what? It's not, not bad. so bad." <laughs> I think it's great because it has real ingredients in it. Like I, when I was yeah. going to the gym in my gym phase, which has been a long time ago now, um, <laughs> I was getting these smoothies at Earth Bar, which sounds very healthy, but it had like protein powder in it, and it's oh, so yeah. interesting how the human brain works. Because when I first tasted it, I was like, "This is the most foul." chemically disgusting <laughs> thing I've ever tasted. But weirdly, like the more I drank it and the more I would get it after a workout, the more I got so like, associating with it. used to it. Yeah. And then I would crave it. I would like be craving these chemicals. That actually also happened to me with Dunkin' Donuts bagels when I was in college. When I first had a Dunkin' Donuts bagel, I was like, this is horrible. And then by like the end of college, like I would just crave Dunkin' Donuts bagels. Yeah. So, okay, your health sludge. So tell us about that. Well, to me, I mean, health sludge, the whole point of it was it's 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 what I actually have for breakfast every day. And, okay. Uh, and for me, the main trick to it, honestly, you can kind of get into wherever you want to. But I think the issue people get into with smoothies so often, is what makes them not that good for you is the liquid you're using. If mm. you're pouring, you know, a 16 ounce glass of orange juice <laughs> into your blender, you're just yeah. drinking a lot of sugar. Um, and so uh, the trick to it is I use water as the liquid. And that's kind of, mm. again, makes it not that delicious, but also not that bad. And so it's. I disagree. I think water is an underrated ingredient. I, I've actually been thinking about that a lot lately that like adding water to things like actually like sometimes extends the flavor. Absolutely. Like in a, like a little bit in a, in a, in a scotch or something open. Yeah. But uh, in a smoothie, it's it definitely. <laughs> right. It waters <laughs> it down literally. It literally uh, waters it down. But, you know, one of the things I get into in this book is I, Sort of try to Trojan horse some of my uh, some of the the research I've been doing on nutrition and health and the way to kind of you know I the this the way I think about this book a lot is I and part of it came from talking to my wife's fans over the course of the pandemic and seeing kind of how overwhelmed people get about food and mm -hmm. you know we always say like the big question is like people are always asking what am I supposed to eat yeah. and food is so personal it's tied up into you know your sense of pleasure shame diet nutrition. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, your relationship with your mother, like everything is tied <laughs> into food. Right. And so, you know, I wanted to try to help people understand things in a way that that uh, was not overbearing. 
I wanted to show people that, you know, I think that that trying matters, that that better is enough, that you don't have to change every part about your life to have it be improved. And so um, one of the things that, and as I was reading about this stuff, thinking about sustainability, and hence, you know, I tend to be more of the less and better model with meat. Um, but then one of the biggest things I discovered in all my research is I was working uh, with this incredible professor named Peter Kareva, who used to run the UCLA Institute of the Environment and Sustainability and now runs the Aquarium of the Pacific down in Long Beach. And he was he's big in the academic world. So he would send me these this metadata studies. So, so it's rather than like you find one study that you saw on like a CNN.com <laughs> where they right. found one study and then found a way to like to push it is these are uh, studies of multiple studies. So it was studying thousands of studies on certain <laughs> nutritional topics. And okay. so you start to actually get real data that way. And the most staggering part of the entire thing of everything that I read was that basically we are a massively fiber deficient country and that eating mm. more fiber is one of the most important things for your health. And actually that uh, almost no one's eating enough fiber. And then if you increase your fiber pretty dramatically, it reduces what they called all cause death by 30%. Okay. So literally things that kill you <laughs> reduce yeah. by about a third if you increase your fiber intake. So Hence, how do you do it? Like what do you how do you get all that fiber? Well, put some chia seeds and some flax yeah. seeds into your health sludge in the morning, but also like beans and also a lot of the stuff that's really high fiber is really sustainable to eat. Like beans are one of the healthiest uh things to eat. They're really easy to grow, they're great for the environment. Um so yeah, a lot of beans, vegetables, lentils are great for that stuff. Uh -huh. um, there's a recipe in the book for what I call barely beef chili, which is basically, it's like kind of a, a beef chili, but it has way less beef than you'd expect. Mm -hmm. And a lot of red lentils, which when they cook yeah. down a lot, they kind of have the texture of like, of like low grade beef. That you yeah, get like I get a, that. Like yeah. a crappy chili. And so you're getting all this fiber, you get the flavor from the beef, you get lots of vegetables in there. So it, and it kind of just like tastes like, like beef chili, but it's way, way, way better for you. And so that's kind of a big, a big uh, thesis of the book for me is, is trying to get those ideas in there. I think everyone is obsessed with protein and they should be obsessed with fiber. Like we're fiber. all getting enough protein. Yeah. No I mean, it's funny, funny because like fiber, like I just think immediately of Kashi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whenever I buy Kashi, like high fiber cereal, did you ever see the Saturday Night Live sketch yes. called Col Colon Blow? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where like um, Phil Hartman is like sitting on a mountain of cereal. Because like when I have Kashi, it's like, okay, like batten down the hatches. Like this yeah. is going to be very uncomfortable. But also one of the things that you'll notice, and this is something I get into the book too, and granted, you know, you can skip over the parts where I rant about this stuff and just go to the recipes <laughs> that are brick. And there's also like not healthy food too, like, like mozzarella marinara. <clears throat> um, but so often the things that people use to sell you fiber also have a ton of sugar in them. So all these right. like fiber bars are really high sugar. And so that's a thing that I think starts throwing the whole balance off. And so, you know, what's why I find that, you know, getting people to cook at home more just gives you more ownership over what you're eating and more control over it. And right. all these heavily processed foods where they're just jamming so much stuff in there. I get so, uh, I laugh about it, but like the way that they start to modify labeling Try to trick you into it, into what you're eating. My favorite one lately is uh, is evaporated cane juice. <laughs> what is that? It's sugar. Oh, right. How do you course. think you make sugar? Oh, that's <laughs> hilarious. Call it evaporated cane oh, juice. Oh my god, I never put that together. That's really wow. That kind of shit is infuriating. Or they say there's no sugar, and then they put you know sucralose and stevia in. Yeah. And it's not like that stuff's amazing for you. Um, I uh, for an article that I wrote that's coming out in I think a couple of weeks, hopefully or probably close to when this is airing. Mm -hmm. um, 
I was working on this kind of crazy piece for Eater about how uh, how boxed chicken broth is is made and where it comes from. And it's a whole weird, terrifying, bizarre universe. One of the people I got to talk to for the article is uh, Michael Moss, who's a, uh, I think he won a Pulitzer Prize for some of his reporting and the ways he kind of covers food. Um, he was like big on like the cargo, like beef contamination stuff back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had done all this research on labeling. And one of the things he was kind of talking to me about is that we like to think that like the labeling on food is there to protect us, but mm-hmm. actually it is a negotiation between the government entities and these businesses to figure out essentially what do we have to put on here to give people the impression that we're taking care of them, but really it's all about everyone's bottom line and making money. And oh, so, okay. you know, and this all started because if you look at most boxes of chicken broth, yeah, the first ingredient is chicken broth. Yeah, and I'm always confused by that. I'm like, what yeah. does that mean? Well, I guess that's well, what your article is about. Yeah, it was. It's articles about me trying to find out what the hell's going on and Ooh. why no one will talk to me about it. And, and you're uh, going to be like assassinated by uh, Purdue or like whoever makes those uh, um, Swanson. The Swanson people are like looking out your window, right into your window, right now. That's what I was hoping would happen, but <laughs> yeah. it's actually more depressing because it's like not a big secret, and it's just like it's all legal and above board. It's not. There's not some horrible nefarious thing happening they just you know it's it's big industrial complex stuff and they yeah. don't really want to tell you what they're doing but they want you to have the impression of of a, a home-cooked meal with a picture mm-hmm. of a bowl of soup on the front and uh the reality yeah. is uh, you'll 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 read about it soon but it's uh it sounds good yeah, it's like a terry gilliam-esque uh depressing <laughs> uh, uh foodscape and it's really kind of gets me into the whole the whole way that we think about food and how kind of yeah. sad it is i have a lot of depressing food rants if you want them no no it's so funny because like recently i was watching seinfeld when i was in boca for thanksgiving and i saw all the cereal that he had on his shelf and for some reason that really made, made me crave like breakfast cereal like that i used yeah. to eat as a kid yeah um, not poshy like like i'm talking about like honeycomb like corn pops corn pops so i started buying it like when i got back i was like you know what like i'm 43 about to be 44 like i can have cereal. I mean, because I was so Alice Watersy for the last 20 years. Like I was sure. just everything has to be natural. I mean, overnight oats and oatmeal and you know, all yeah. that crap. And it's like, I'm just gonna eat cereal in the morning. And I have to say, like, contrary to what you would think, it actually made me feel great. Like it put me yeah. in such a good mood. I was like, I feel like a kid again. Like I love the way this tastes. Happiness had- is relevant to your diet. Yeah, totally. And I think about like, what are all the crazy things we put into our body anyway? Like, even just drinking, like, we have a Brita filter that we never replace the filter. So it's like, <laughs> I'm drinking tap water basically every day. And like, who knows what's in that? I mean, I, don't, yeah. I actually don't want to know. And yeah. it's like, if I'm drinking that, then who cares if I have a bowl of cereal? I don't know. I just like it. Sometimes I'm just like, I over, I'm overly concerned about what I put in my body. And it's actually really funny because I, I, when my parents go to this like salad bar in Boca where they get lunch. And I think the most dangerous thing on the salad bar is actually the romaine lettuce. Because it's like yeah, it has E. coli because it's just been sitting there. Um, well, it's like if you, you travel say? to like third world <laughs> countries, you get sick from the salad, not from yeah, the, from the exactly. Meat, you know? So you never know. Yeah. But my, you know, I have a sort of a general philosophy around the food that I eat, which is just kind of a good way that keeps me to kind of pay attention to what I'm doing. Is I want everything that I eat to either be something that I'm really excited about or is really yeah. good for me. And if it's not mm. one of those two things, then like it's a waste of my time. I like so that. That's really if you good. You go to a restaurant and you can't decide what to order because nothing really sounds that good. Just get the healthiest thing. And that way, yeah. if it sucks, at least it was healthy. 
Um, wow, this is going to go viral. This is a great clip. I'm going to put this on TikTok. <laughs> well, Noah, you've been a great first guest, and I think I need to come up with like a gimmicky final question for my "You've Got to Taste This" podcast. So I came up you with. You want it. to hear my rant about about uh, about about chicken eggs? <laughs> no, I think we're good on that. Uh, okay, so my last question is: What was the last thing that you tasted that was a "You've Got to Taste This"? Um, moment for you, like whether it was oh, man. something at home or something at a restaurant or something. Do I even else remember cooked? the last food I ate? Uh, <laughs> Just something that blew you away recently that you ate. Um, that... Oh, you know what? This actually, I cooked this yesterday to bring over to my. Uh, we're taping this uh, right after the new year, and uh, my neighbor had a, a New Year's Day party, and okay. so he was making uh, some very very good chicken and dumplings and black eyed peas, and I said, oh, you know what? I'll bring over some collard greens. And so I went back into the old Bloodsoe's barbecue cookbook and made Kevin Bloodsoe's collard greens. And they're just so good. It's the really? best collard greens I've ever had. And, and, and yeah, the whole trick to it is uh, making a really, really flavorful smoked ham hock broth, uh -huh. letting it really get a lot of flavor to it, and then cooking the greens in them for like 45 minutes. And then they were like perfect. They're tender. They're not uh, mushy. They're not bitter. And yeah. cooking it in like, way more broth than you think you need to keep them from getting bittered out. And so, yeah, Kevin Bloodsoe's collard greens is my answer. Perfect answer. Well, we got a lot of bang for our buck here in this uh, debut episode. So thanks for being my guinea pig. Thank and, you so much uh, for having me. Yeah, and, congrats uh, on the book. Looking forward to your guinea pig recipe uh, coming up in the next <laughs> newsletter. Uh, yeah, totally. Um, well, and if people want this recipe for the porcini pasta, would it be okay if I included it in the Absolutely. podcast description? Okay. All Please right. Do. And if people who want to get your book, it's called Don't Panic Pantry, and it comes out January 31st. January 31st. And actually, uh, uh, today in, in real life, I don't know when this is coming out, but uh, we're doing uh, throughout the month, every episode of the YouTube show, we're featuring recipes from the book. And that recipe is on the show. So if you want to watch me make it you can yeah. even uh, watch that and there's a recipe in the description there as well so links awesome. all around and uh this was such a pleasure all right well good luck with everything and i'm sure i'll see you around thanks so much adam all right take care have a good one you too all right thanks for listening to the debut episode of you've got to taste this and if you decided that you do really have to taste this and you decide to make noah gluten's porcini rosemary pasta which really is delicious um, please take pictures of it and tag me on social media at Amateur Gourmet. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on TikTok. And I'd love to see what you think of this dish. And if you have ideas for future episodes and dishes you want me to try, uh, shoot me an email at AmateurGourmet at gmail.com. All right. I'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening.